In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Okay, guys, uh, today we've got for you a show that was recorded live in Washington, D.C. at the historic Sixth and High Synagogue. Uh, this actually happened back last Wednesday, so it was the very night of the impeachment vote on Donald Trump. Uh, so, so listen for a, a moment of cheering and enthusiasm from the crowd. Uh, but the discussion is not about that. It's about refugees and immigration policy. Uh, really interesting, really important stuff. I think you're going to enjoy it. Hello. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined by Jane Coaston and ProPublica's Dara Lind. And we are really excited to be live tonight uh, from the Sixth and I Synagogue right here in Washington, D.C. I uh, want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, a, a blessed uh, impeachment day. Although I, I have to say it's... Um, it's shocking, really, that people who profess to be interested in politics would be here instead of you know, trying to weigh the arguments in the impeachment <laughs> debate. Uh, I, I think a lot of people have open minds or are finding that all. Uh, Devin Nunez is going to change a lot of minds tonight. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's big, there's big stuff. So, uh, you know, in actually, case— I would, I would go so far as to say that these are going to be the only interested people in Washington, D.C. <laughs> tonight. No, right, yes. Uh, impeachment is boring. That's, that's the joke. Um, so— <laughs> Um, I'm I'm Jewish myself, but my understanding of the spirit of of the Christmas season is that it's all about uh, trying to exclude people uh, in need and and not help out, uh, which is why we are going to talk about the Trump administration's uh, refugee policy, uh, which very much captures that spirit. It's, it's, uh, a, it's a, a super no room at the end refugee policy. Exactly, um, and. You know, I, I thought to, to start this off, I mean, this, this is Vox, this is our approach, and, and I do see people confused about this all the time. And I'm hoping Derek can, can help explain, like, literally what is a refugee, and, and how is that different from the people who've been arriving at the southern border and, and claiming asylum? Because that's been in the news a lot, but it's actually not the same thing. So I, I do have to ask this because I'm at Sixth and I, and I'm also an idiot and didn't bring mine. Does anybody have a spare keeper? Okay, that's fine. I'll just spiritually have my like hand over my head for this whole thing. Um, so there's the colloquial meaning. There's, there's a colloquial slash like people who are interested in these issues and debate them tend to make a distinction between, between refugee and migrant, right? The idea is like, oh, migrant implies that someone is voluntarily. <laughs> oh. Yay. 
All right. Um, so, a you know, you imply that a migrant is someone who's voluntarily like going from one place to another. The implication is that it's you know you often hear it as economic migrant. So it's you know it's usually seen as a kind of oh it's you you chose to do this and therefore the state can do whatever it wants to block you because it's not you know whatever they, you can't do whatever you want just because you feel like picking up and moving to another country refugee on the other hand has a colloquial understanding like you're being forced to leave now this is in practice a little bit tricky um, it's generally really hard to know a whether someone you know is 100% being forced to leave or whether they didn't have like a little bit of agency in the matter. It's hard to know when someone is in such desperate straits that it turns into forced migration. There's also the kind of second layer, which is that refugee is also in the U.S. context a very specific policy term. And it refers to people who were already selected to come to the U.S. while they were abroad and were brought here and like placed with particular organizations to help them start a new life in the U.S. Whereas asylum in the U.S. context is for people who come here either as unauthorized migrants or they like come here on visas and then present themselves and say, I am afraid to return to my home country. I would like to stay. Those, you know, that's a separate because it happens like in the U.S. Should we keep you or not? Uh, a separate policy process. But in the kind of colloquial understanding, once you're found to deserve asylum, you're also, you know, that also kind of retroactively means, oh, you must have been a refugee, um, which makes things a little bit tricky to talk about because you can't, in practice, the most accurate term for somebody who's like coming here from Guatemala uh, is asylum seeker because they haven't yet been granted asylum. And so calling them refugees kind of makes an assumption about the ultimate success of that. Also, it implies a different policy process. But when we're talking in the global context about like, you know, the global refugee crisis or the global displacement crisis or what have you, all of those distinctions start to seem a little bit facile because we're talking about groups of people, like large groups of people who are moving from one place to another. But refugee policy in the United States... Right, it's about the kind it, of external resettlement. Right, so that's based on people who are living in a refugee camp, typically, somewhere. They have fled one country, and they are now in a different country, which is not the United States. And right. they have gone through a process. And the United States has, over the years, it takes in people, not people who flee to the United States, but people who have left their homeland. They are someplace else. And the United States takes in a certain number of people like that and gives them a permanent home here. And that's different from... Uh, Cubans or Haitians yes. fleeing on boats or Guatemalans showing up at, at, at the southern border. It's a, it's a much more formal kind of process where there is vetting and, yes. what, and like an application. it's permanent. Right. It's, you know, the, the term used globally is third country resettlement, which is very helpful because often, you know, most of... We are most the third people, country. Yes, exactly. Like most people who are refugees right now are being held in, you know, semi-indefinite, like, camp situations where they're not fully regularized. They don't necessarily have, you know, work rights where they are, but they're not, you know, the hope is that ultimately they'll find it safe to go back to their home countries, but that takes a very long time to do. And often you'll have people, who, you increasingly have people who are just displaced for like decades. So the idea of the third country is you are being selected to move there for good. You know, the U.S. will 
give you, like, it will, it will teach you English, it will help you find a job, it will help you find housing, it will get you on your feet, um, because the idea is that you are not going to be able to go back home ever, and so therefore you deserve, like, a second chance at a new life. And we see the beginnings of this process following the Second World War. Um, yes. You know, public people who literally can never return to from whence they came. And it's interesting because it's something that Matt brought up in the green room beforehand is that you know, this is not a strictly an American problem. If we're talking about the global refugee crisis, we're talking about a global issue. You know, this is something that's happening in refugee camps in Kenya, at Dadaab. This is something that's happening, you know, a kind of across the global South and around the world. But Trump is riding a very specific wave and doing so in a very specific way with regard to third, you know, third country resettlement and how this issue is handled. The other thing that's, that's worth noting about like the historical context here is that it's, not, it's, it's both a response to what do we do with these particular people who are now displaced. It's also a guilty response to the fact that Jews attempted to escape Nazi uh, yes. Germany and were turned away. Um, and the, you know, that kind of survivor guilt by proxy that Western right. governments felt led them to say, all right, we know exactly what persecution looks like. It looks like that thing that happened just now. And so the legal categories for who counts as a refugee assume that there is going to be a government that is persecuting you based on one particular category, like your race or your religion or your nationality. And as the 20th century became the 21st, you both had groups that weren't actually governments, but that might have as much power over someone's life as if they were the government, like a transnational gang, for example. And you had ways, forms of persecution that didn't necessarily map onto like something clearly delineated in the refugee convention. So as the facts of why people might be fleeing kind of drifted away from the black letter law of the 1951 refugee convention, and in the US people tried to kind of create more and more jurisprudence on particular social group, which is the elastic clause of the Refugee Convention and therefore needed a lot more, you know, okay, does this count or not? It's, it's, that has created the kind of policy opportunity into which Trump and a bunch of other countries have come, which is, well, these people aren't real refugees. We know what real refugees look like. We have all the love in the world for real refugees. This is not that. But so, and therefore, we get to do what we want. But, but I mean, so th this, to, to draw back to the distinction, right, there's, I, I was saying it's interesting to, to think about, like, what does Trump talk about a lot versus where do we see action that he doesn't talk about a lot? We heard from Trump a lot of talk about the southern border right, in, in various different contexts, both in the context of unauthorized migration from Mexico and then in the context of asylum seekers who are coming from the Northern Triangle. And, and this, you know, question of border control, right, is like, are we supervising what is happening and are they somehow they, quote unquote, sending bad people? Um, but then you have refugee resettlement, right, which is not about that. And where I don't recall, at least, Trump making a lot of public statements on this subject, really. He totally did. Um, in, in 2015, when the kind of, when the Syrian refugee crisis really came into relief for a lot of people because of the image of Ilan Kurdi, um, the, you know, the five-year-old who was pictured after he drowned, um, that 
wave of support was followed by a backlash led by then-candidate Donald Trump, who routinely accused Syrian refugees of being a Trojan horse. And if you remember and, the uh, Skittles image shared yes, by Donald Trump yes. Jr., this entire idea, I and mean, when we see that a little bit, it kind of gets to the idea of like, you know, we know what real refugees look like, but these refugees are Trojan horses for terrorism. And right. that's something, it's interesting because, again, this is a global issue. It's the same issue that you're seeing right-wing parties like AFD in Germany making, the same argument that you're seeing, like, you know, they're not, they're economic migrants. It's not bad enough, whatever they're dealing with. And you see, you know, the forms of persecution, again, as Dara pointed out, these were specific forms of persecuting. Uh, persecution. If you are being, you know, threatened with death by a gang, that's not the Guatemalan government doing that, but it is a, in a sense, an extra governmental entity that but, perhaps is stronger than that government. But so, what what is the change that Trump has made here? Well, so I mean, I actually, I, like, I want to go back to 2015 because yeah. it's super useful. Like when Trump kind of helped that backlash take root what you ended up seeing was a lot of Republican governors, including then-Governor Mike Pence of Indiana, saying, actually, we, we would like to not take any Syrian refugees, please and thank you. Um, and Congress actually, then I think Republicans, yeah, Republicans had both chambers. Congress tried for like a minute to include in a bill that you know states could refuse any refugees from, from a particular country if they wanted to. That is now what Trump has enshrined into U.S. policy. Mm -hmm. um, start like this year, every year the president has the power. It's one of those things that um, because immigration is close to foreign policy, the president has a lot of power in it. And so every year the president has the power to determine how many refugees the U.S. will resettle for the next year. Uh, so when Donald Trump came out with this year's presidential determination, which is like extremely low, and the reason I don't remember the number is because the U.S. hasn't even come close to meeting the last two years caps. So like something along the lines of 20,000, 22,000? 18,000. 18,000, yeah. yeah. Um, but in addition to that, he came out with an executive order that said that now, in order for a community to resettle refugees, which used to just be like, there are a bunch of national voluntary organizations, many of which are religious groups, uh, HIAS, which is the Jewish Refugee Resettlement Charity, is you know, long established, for example, uh, they have branch offices and like their branch offices are resettling the migrants with you know, support from local, local and state governments. Under the new regime, you have to have explicit sign-off from both the local government and the state government saying, refugees are okay with us, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, both a kind of political, oh, if something bad happens, you get to blame the governor and the mayor who let it happen, and a way that, you know, for example, Houston is a big refugee resettlement hub. There's a lot of anxiety over whether the state of Texas will, like, actually, you know, sign off and say refugees are cool with us. It's actually been, like, a few Republican governors have been. Uh, the governor of Tennessee just said, yes, refugees are fine. Uh, governor of Arizona has done the same thing. So it hasn't happened in exactly the way that the Trump administration expected, which, you know, would have been to really further reduce refugee resettlement by reducing the number of places that were both equipped to do it and allowed but to. But it does now create a partisan it does. issue, right? It does. So it's now now a thing you could do if you were running for governor of Minnesota yes. is say that you will block refugee resettlement. Because, uh, I, I mean, I know, you know, refugees in Minneapolis is a subject of uh, discussion uh, often <laughs> on the American right. But it has not traditionally been something the state government actually has authority over. So it's a kind of a, a hypothetical wedge issue that's now made made real as, as a topic. But I mean, also, I, I mean, I think that the headline conclusion, right, is that Trump has just cut the, the overall numbers 
enormously, right? It was under under Obama, it was like about 100,000? Yeah, the, the cap for the last year of Obama was 100,000, and they were, and the thing about the cap is, it's, okay, it's not actually, it's, it's officially a target. The Trump administration has treated it as a cap. Um, it's also dependent on capacity, right? Because there is this ludicrously long, you know, taking an average of two years vetting process um, with a lot of moving parts. Like by the time your background check is cleared, whether you have your medical check is, you know, may, that may have expired. So, and you're by definition taking people from less than stable parts of the world. So if, for example, Syria flares up and there are protests in Iraq, you can't go to Iraq to interview potential Syrian refugees. So it's always been a little bit touch and go as to how many refugees the U.S. will actually resettle in every given year. What Trump has done is both cut the cap and by reducing the capacity, starting with the actual like refugee resettlement moratorium that was part of the travel ban when it was finally allowed to go through, it's very hard to actually come anywhere close to meeting that cap. So, like, for a couple of years there, you know, you were having a refugee cap at, like, 40,000 and, like, 25,000 people actually getting resettled. And where those people were resettled from depended on whether it was possible to, like, clear their background checks, which, if they were coming from countries that the Trump administration treated as security risks, was, like, difficult, which was kind of another, you know, in addition so this is a question to the of State Department personnel, It's State basically. Department, and uh, well, there, there is a process known as the interagency process, which is kind of a black hole where refugee security vetting goes to die. Um, in 2018, there was a story from my now colleague, Yegana Torbati, at Reuters, uh, which basically said that for a while there was one person at the FBI whose job it was to go through all of the refugee checks. Uh, which makes sense if you're the FBI, because that's not necessarily the job that you want to be spending putting people on, but it creates a huge bottleneck for the refugee resettlement process. Um, so that's, and, you know, the sense is that that's gotten a little bit better as, like, things, you know, as people have figured out the Trump administration and as the numbers at the end of the process are low enough that it's not, you know, a huge jam anyway. But it does mean that in addition to the explicit, like, Donald Trump has a very robust theory of we shouldn't be helping, we, we shouldn't be, it shouldn't be on us to take everyone, and people should be settled closer to where they live, that he will say at any international audience given the opportunity. There are these kind of small procedural things that mean that even the Trump administration's stated policy may be more generous than what's actually going through. So can I ask Jane, that you, yeah. you, you know, talk, you know Republicans, conservatives. Know, a few. What's the... Like what? What's the issue here? Like, like well, why? Like, why are they so so mad about refugees? Like I what? think that I mean this. This relates to a specific breakdown within the conservative movement because you see a lot of you know some of the kind of anti-Trump or Trump skeptical conservatives of 2015, 2016 were reacting specifically to this, to this idea of you know, you know, if you come from a specific perhaps a religious tradition um, that values, you know, taking care of refugees, um, specifically Christian refugees, because you've seen a lot of Christian organizations, Christian NGOs talking about how, you know, there are Christian refugees, like Christians as a minority religion in Iraq and elsewhere, you know, and this, I, I think it's, it's been interesting because you see the same people who are basically kind of making the, um, you know, anti-refugee arguments. And then when it comes to Christian refugees, they're basically like, well, we didn't mean them. And I'm like, well, you, you, you did. You meant them because you did. But I think it comes from, 
a very specific, and again, this is not just an issue within the American right. This is a general, as you know, kind of the rise of populist nationalism worldwide. This is an issue that's taking place in the UK. This is an issue taking place in Germany, in Hungary, in basically anywhere kind of Australia. Oi, <laughs> Australia. Um, you know, where people want to be put on a, well, they don't want to be put on an island and left to die, but that's what they've done. Um, but I think that it comes from, one, the idea, and, you know, I'll have to go to, you know, the wise sage Tommy Lahren um, for this viewpoint. Um, you know, she really speaks to the ethos, the... Um, more the id, but um, that, you know this idea of like why are they fleeing? They should go back and figure out things there. But there isn't, you know, I want to have like ah, there's like this lengthy conservative tradition here. But no, it's you know one of the challenges within movement conservatism, and I've written about this before, is that there's sometimes is like there's kind of the top level, the super ego, so to speak, that like yes, we are relying on the arguments of Burke or perhaps Russell Kirk or perhaps Irving Kristol. But then there's kind of this base argument of like we don't trust those people. Why are they getting help and we are not getting help? And I think that that's something, I mean, it's not just obviously a conservative thing to be xenophobic. Um, xenophobia is a bipartisan tradition that crosses all, as we've learned. But I do think that there's a sense of, you know, one, when refugees stopped looking like small children, small white children, perhaps fleeing from the Yugoslav war, and started looking like little brown kids fleeing from Syria or from war in North Africa or from you know, any other global conflict, specifically global conflicts that maybe we helped in. Um, and especially when you know, there became cons growing concerns about the alleged link between refugees and terrorism, um, I say alleged because there isn't really one, but kind of this idea that a you know, rising, raising the borders and um, closing the walls will keep people safe. But it, 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 there isn't like a grand conservative tradition of this, but there is kind of a grand human tradition of it. The other thing I'll say, and this kind of uh, predates the Trumpian moment a little bit, though it's definitely part of what's being drawn on, is like refugees are different from any other legal immigrant in that they're not selected because of their proximity to or value to the United States. Um, like it's not, you know, they are less likely to have immediate job market ready skills than people who are deliberately allowed to come to the United States because they already have a job here. They may not already have immediate family members in the United States, which is the other kind of major avenue via which people can come here legally. So there's a certain sense that, you know, the flip side of we're letting them in because we're expressing an American value right. because like we are showing that we are a generous nation is, but we don't actually need them. Right. right. So you've, you've had a long kind of, it's always been very easy to pick on like refugees taking welfare benefits and that kind of thing, because there are exceptions to what are generally extremely strict eligibility requirements, um, you know, for people, because on the assumption that they may not necessarily be able to support themselves. That's not why they were allowed to settle in the United States. So they've always been a little bit easy to pick off right. in, a, in a globally skeptical immigration environment. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's like a, an important aspect of this. Cause I mean, I remember one day I was, I was walking uh, on, on 14th street. I was like out by, um, 
by Bar Pilar, and I saw a guy coming down the other way, and I was I was really sort of shocked by this. But he's wearing a T-shirt, and it says uh, "Veterans Before Refugees," and it just like it didn't it didn't compute in my head that like there was a strict trade-off here. Um, but it's true, you know, if you know, if you study the literature, right, um, there is a lot of concern in the mass public about the idea that immigrants in general are soaking up public benefits and crowding out benefits for natives. And most of the American immigration system is like really built to make that not be the case, right? There is a lot of restrictions on immigrants' ability to access public benefits. That's clearly a, a thing that people want. I mean, there is incredible paranoia about this. And then refugees though, like really do get public benefits, right? Like it, it is not, unlike in the general immigration case, like it is not a myth that both public and charitable resources are dedicated specifically to refugees because the idea of refugees is that these are people who need help and we have decided to help them. And to the extent that you have a, a mentality that like it may be okay for foreigners to come here to help us, but it is definitely not okay to be helping foreigners, like refugee policy is all about helping foreigners. Like that is the, the hardcore point of it. And you can look, there's, there's all these, you know, People who like immigrants have these studies about how there are, in fact, long-term economic benefits of refugee resettlement. And, and I buy all that, but you still can't get a, around the fact that, like, on a person-for-person -person basis, like, a refugee is not the most economically beneficial kind of migrant. Like, by design, you are picking people who are in conditions of desperate need and who are receiving assistance and like people just don't like we can say like that that's not who we are but I think you know survey data makes it pretty clear like that is exactly who we are and who most people in most places are like they do not want the welfare state to help foreigners. I think also it's interesting that you brought up kind of the veterans versus uh, refugees shirt because that's this is that's not new. You know, when there were people fleeing the Khmer Rouge and coming to South Texas, there was a whole conflict between um, people fleeing from you know Cambodia and the end of the Vietnam War. You know, literally fighting with the Klan, Klan members, some of whom were former Vietnam veterans who'd been disillusioned by the war. And this resulted in a host of violence. It's actually very interesting. You can read about it in the book, uh, Bring the War Home by Kathleen Ballou, who's a genius. But this entire concept of this idea, I mean, I think that that gets at something that we're dealing with in our politics more generally, is this idea that there is kind of this one zero binary system that like a dollar to a refugee means no dollars to veterans, even though that's not at all how any of this works. There is no pie, there is no binary system. But I think that that's something, and again, like this is something that's pretty common across kind of the developed world to be having these views, especially as the welfare state itself, you know, the welfare state was developed in many countries with the idea that people who looked like you would be benefiting from it. And when people who don't look like you start benefiting from it, you're like, I don't know about all that welfare state now. Like, you know, you start seeing people who are just kind of like, I like Medicare, but like, I liked it when my people were getting it, and then those people started getting it. It, it's a, it seems pretty common. Well, the other thing, and, and you mentioned this, you alluded to this earlier in terms of U.S. involvement in, you know, foreign conflicts that then create refugees, and also, like, in the context of these 
Vietnam vets turned clan members being disillusioned with the war. Like that's, that's an important component because it gets at kind of the question of who does the warfare state benefit? Mm -hmm. One of the you know, things that is, in, this would have seemed a lot weirder if I were saying it five years ago. Uh, it's now kind of become commonplace that a large part of like, you know, like that many national security hawks may not necessarily believe that like the Trump administration, like may think that the Trump administration is doing some immoral things, but like they, the people who are super, super, super invested in, you know, the people who were their translators in Iraq and Afghanistan are very concerned about America not taking in people on special immigrant visas, whereas the, you know, the kind of Trump intellectual firmament has always been a little more, well, we didn't really need to be there to begin with. Right. Like, why, you know, we shouldn't be involved in foreign wars. That's not our, that's not our concern. We need to be taking care of our own people first. And that's kind of the place where this all comes to rest is the idea that really these are, these people should be someone's concern, but they should be someone else's concern. Right. Well, and, you know, I, St Steve Saylor, my, my favorite white nationalist intellectual, has a, he, he, he likes to <laughs> caricature, <laughs> you know, his, his line on neoconservatives is that, and George W. Bush, is that like his view was invade the world, invite the world, right? And that, you know, he wants to do the opposite of that, like don't create these obligations to translators and Vietnamese Montagnards and, and all these other things. Like we should stay home and they should stay home, and everything is going to be fine, right? Like right. that's those right. And, and if anyone has an obligation to help people, it's the people who are like culturally more similar to them. Like you know, there's I've gotten plenty of of responses about people saying, "Oh, it's it's perfectly fine that we're not taking in asylum seekers because they can just go to other countries that are more similar." I'm like, "What do you mean by more similar?" And they're like, "Uh, they speak Spanish." I'm like, "Many of these people speak indigenous languages. Uh, they're also <laughs> Catholic." Okay. I mean, there are, there definitely are arguments and like literally, um, this is me talking about the migrant, migrant protection protocols again, which I guess was inevitable here. But um, one of the reasons that of the tens of thousands of people the U.S. is forcing to, to wait in Mexico for court hearings, um, they're ostensibly not sending back people who don't speak Spanish. They're only sending back people from Spanish-speaking countries, which can be as far away as like, you know, Venezuela or whatever, but there's still, the logic is you can at least integrate into the Mexican labor market in theory if you can speak the language. So there is, you know, there's, there's something to be said for that, but it does rest on a, on an idea of not just geography as a like, oh, it makes sense that you're going to flee to the next country and then the next country becomes responsible for you, but you have an obligation to select where you're going to flee to based on places that aren't so different from your own that those people wouldn't feel okay accepting you. But what do we, I, I, I still sort of have this question, Jane. I mean, in a, in a non-caricatured way, right? Right. There's always, there's always something that's up. But like, it's, it's interesting to me, like, we did, have not had, say, a terrorist attack that was perpetrated by someone who had been admitted to the United States as a refugee. Right? That's something that could happen. I mean, people, people do things, and then you would imagine a backlash right. Right? would ensue from that. And you might not approve of that backlash, but you would still say, that's what happened. Right? There was this incident, it created a backlash. Like, what, 
what fuels the backlash here? Like, what is the thing that conservatives point to that's like, this has happened and it's, it's bad? Well, there doesn't need to be a thing when you have the capability of inventing a thing. Like, let's keep in mind that, like, you know, we're still in the age of Infowars having to settle a lawsuit with Chobani for entirely making up a whole thing about how immigrants brought in by Chobani, the yogurt people, um, did something terrible because they made it all up because that's what Alex Jones does. But, like, I think also there's kind of an idea that um, after uh, some terrorist attacks in France and in the United Kingdom, and kind of the idea, the idea kind of began that because um, terrorism, um, the, the lone wolf profile, and I'm, I'm using that term, and I know a lot of terror experts are like, don't say that term, but I can't think of another good one for it, because there is no such thing as a lone wolf. A lot of these terrorist groups, um, from ISIS to white nationalist groups, they are connected. There's no such thing really as a lone wolf. But anyway, like the idea would be that you, you would claim to be a refugee, You'd show up in London, and then you'd do something terrible in the name of ISIS, and then people would be scared, and that would be bad. Um, and so I think that there was just kind of this idea that a thing shouldn't have to happen, that you should be premeditative. And I also think that there's just kind of the general concept, and this gets into kind of a basic argument um, you know, within kind of the post-liberal right um, and the post-Christian right, and you can read more on that. Um, Jane is doing air quotes. I am but, doing but air if quotes. if you're listening is, to this <laughs> later. I'm, this is a you very no visual medium. You this happens in the studio, by it's the way. True. It's true. I do a lot of air quotes and hand gestures because it's a very visual medium podcast. <laughs> um, but kind of the idea, you know, a lot of the basic sentiments on like, we should do this is based on a concept of should that for many people relies on a sense of morality, a sense of perhaps religious morality. And for some people, you know, not necessarily within the conservative movement, but within the right, the idea of religious morality, perhaps from a Judeo-Christian perspective, is backwards and is like, you know, it's drowning us in brown people, so to speak. You know, and you get this if you go, you know, if you travel into the alt-right and then just into like white nationalism, is the entire idea that you know, this kind of quote-unquote slave morality is the fault here. That you know, we're, we're only doing these things because we're nice and we should stop being nice. Which is actually something I think Trump has said, is that you know, we need to stop being nice. That we're, you know, that we're as a country, we're too nice. We gotta be tough. We gotta be tough. You know, not tough on, like, Goldman Sachs, but tough on brown people. Do you, do you, um, should we talk about the snake? Oh, oh my gosh. Do we no. have to talk about the snake? <laughs> but, I mean, that, that, Seems basic, relevant. that basic idea that, like, you can't trust these people and we need to be tough. Some people want to be nice, but we can't even be nice to, like, Christian minority groups because, you know, they might not be real Christians. Because if they were real Christians, they would live in, like, Idaho, where the real Christians are from. Um, well, yeah, or, you know, the, the slightly wonkier version of that is even if you're an Iranian Christian, you're still relying on a policy regime that treats you as a citizen of Iran, um, which therefore creates more hoops for you to jump through, um, which is definitely a problem that actual Iranian Christians and Christian interest groups in the U.S. have pointed out with the current refugee environment. The other thing I want to talk to talk about regarding the kind of pointing to the European context in the American one is, like, there is a certain legitimacy to the argument that you didn't know who coming in circa 2015 
to Europe was a legitimate refugee because there were so many of them. That's not a refugee flow in the in the like in the context of U.S. refugee resettlement. This is where the refugee asylum thing gets really relevant, right? Like that was an asylum seeker flow, and it was much kind of bigger by scale than what we're talking about at the U.S. border now. Much less than what you know. Colombia is dealing with in terms of Venezuelan refugees, um, much less than what Lebanon and Turkey are dealing with in terms of Syrian refugees. Um, but there is that kind of fear of uncontrolled masses, which can express itself in a just super racist way, but can also be, well, you know, it's very easy for a wolf to sneak in with a sheep. Like, that is a policy that is in the realm of legitimate policy concerns. It's not the same thing as we need to be super, 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 super additionally skeptical on this particular group of people because as a group of people, they've demonstrated they're not trustworthy, which is where the slippage happens. But I think this relates to the concern about so-called chain migration, right? That in the U.S. policy context, if you settle even a small number of refugees from a given country or given ethnic group, right, that opens the door, right, that becomes a founder population for a larger population of immigrants, right? So even if you don't have a specific concern about Somali refugee X, it's allowing any refugees from Somalia creates a population of Somali immigrants in your city, in your country. And if you think that's bad, which I think Republicans have articulated very clearly, they do think <laughs> it's bad, right? The, the only way to prevent that is to not let any, any in, right? And that's like part of the, the shithole countries discourse and, and, and other things like that, right? That there are, there are categories of people who we don't want in, and an individualized assessment of one particular person isn't even necessarily that relevant. I hate that we have to say shithole countries discourse. I feels like like taking like an absolute pile of shit and putting a nice little silk bow on it and being like, we're going to discuss it as discourse. But it is. It is. It's super robust. It's uh -huh. like it's it's absolutely the perfect expression of the idea that. The fact that you came from somewhere that was terrible enough that you had to leave is a reflection of your lack of human capital, um, which is the flip the flip right. side of what you know what we were discussing earlier. Like why I mean, don't they like stay in their home country? This is like this whole crazy littering thing, right? Sorry, this is like this whole crazy littering thing. Yes, that's yeah. up. That it's like people who come from countries that are bad places to live will like infect will bring our their badness, right? And there's there's also you know you you wanted to talk about. TPS and DED, and I'm about, about to back us into it, but like, in the, if you're saying that someone has to flee their home country because it's terrible, everyone will say, in theory, that they want their home country to be somewhere they can go back to live. There are very few people who will say, I have no hope for that, you know, that the place that I grew up will ever become somewhere that will welcome people like me ever again. And so because of that, and this is something that, you know, international organizations make a big deal out of as well as like national governments. The, the goal of allowing refugees to return safely to their home countries is something that's often held up as like, okay, that's your, that, that's plan A. Everything else is just various plans B. And that can be easily turned into, well, then the minute it's safe, they need to go back. So you, we're already, you know, we're seeing pressure on Syrian refugees to go home. That's definitely, uh, part of the thinking in the kind of question about the Syrian ceasefire and peace plan and the U.S.'s involvement in that. Um, 
the Trump administration has ended temporary protected status or tried to for a bunch of populations on the logic that if they were allowed to stay in the U.S. because their countries were recovering from natural disasters like 10 or 20 years ago, it's time for them to go back. Um, and that, you know, it, it comes from the exact same, we didn't select you, and probably you didn't have enough things going for you that we would have wanted to select you, and therefore you should go back to your shithole country and make it less shitholey? question mark? Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. I think with that, we should take a turn to our research paper of it's the week. True. It's true. Jane, take us away. It's about our own country, which yes. is not a shithole. Yes. We are but t- I don't we're think any country really is a shithole. So anyway. We're, we're literally pivoting to the forgotten Americans. This is great. It's yes. true. It's true. Um, so this is a National Bureau of Economic Research paper entitled Abandoned by Coals, Swallowed by Opioids. It comes from Gilbert E. Metcalf and Keetong Wang. And It focuses on the relationship between the coal industry and opioid abuse. And there has been occasionally an argument that um, 
a in, you know, a increase in the mining economy might might lead to a decrease in opioid abuse. And this paper, are, you know, and based on the idea that the opioid epidemic is a response to, in some ways, a worsening economic environment. Uh, just a quote from the paper, research shows that people facing stressful and economic and social conditions are more likely to abuse drugs because, yeah, that seems... <laughs> Sure, um, but this paper shows that you know partly because of the specifics of the coal mining industry, especially underground mining, with the re reminder that there are many different forms of coal mining, um, all of them are very dangerous, um, and especially because of the high injury rate, that actually in communities with a you know a coal industry that is doing well, opioid abuse is higher. Right, so they so they look in coal country. They look sort of community to community, and because because there's a, there's an association between coal country and opioid addiction, and also coal country has been in economic decline. So that leads some people to say, well, the economic decline leads to the opioid addiction. But they look on a micro level, like in towns where the mines have stayed open, is there less or is there more addiction? And they find that there's more addiction uh, because people have bona fide injuries. Right. right, that the, the 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 process starts with people getting prescribed painkillers uh, for serious pain, and it turns out that underground coal mining is a very hazardous occupation that leads to a lot of people getting prescribed powerful pain medication. With which, poor, and it's also an industry with increasingly poor safety protocols because of the relationship between the coal industry barons and our current administration. That's just a side note. Yes. Well, but this, not actually in the, in the scope of this paper, right? But I mean, it, it's almost stupid, but like the conclusion of this research is that the opioid problem is about opioid right. policy. Right, right. yeah. It, 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 I, I do feel a little bit bad for these authors in an academic marketplace where you're more likely to be rewarded for super like bold and counterintuitive findings <laughs> that in trying tips, to yeah. investigate one traditional narrative of the opioid crisis, they swerved into the other traditional narrative of the opioid crisis, which is a bunch of people had workplace injuries and got, you know, got painkillers to recover from their injuries and then got addicted to painkillers and then turned to, you know, once that became harder, turned to street opioids and et cetera. Like, that's not, that's what people were saying, you know, a decade ago. It's not exactly radical, and it's not, it's actually somewhat overstated as the trajectory of the opioid crisis writ large, but it's clearly what happened in coal country. And right. so, you know, the idea that's become popular in the last few years of this, of deaths of despair, of like, overdose, alcoholism, and suicide as kind of the same problem coming from a spiritual malaise in economically depressed communities is in some ways a lot less intuitive than, yes, people needed opioids to go back to work, and right. then they continued to need opioids to keep working. But it is useful to like refocus it a little bit so that we can at least understand, you know, insofar as addiction is a difficult public health problem, did making you know, prescription opioids much harder to get actually, you know, I think that's kind of one of the avenues for future research here is, 
does this change in an right. environment where the federal government is super, super, super committed to not overprescribing, for example. Right, because that's, that's been something that's happened over the last five years or so in response is that the federal government is now very interested in doctors who prescribe, say, you know, a certain number of opioids per month. There are, you know, a lot more restrictions on, you know, sending opioids by mail. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see where that goes. But I do think the point of, like, you know, the positive relationship between coal mining and, mining and opioid mortality may simply outweigh the benefits of stable employment, which seems like a pretty straightforward conclusion, but it's one that seems, that almost seems surprising at this point. Although, I mean, <laughs> I mean that's a very hot take, right? I mean, to, you know, there, there's a certain... I always wonder, you know, in the... Uh, uh, utilitarian calculus about some of these things. Like, like one stylized fact that I know is true about the economy is that in a recession, uh, the death rate tends to go down um, because in the short term, you have fewer people employed, which means they don't commute to work in their cars, which means they don't die in car crashes. Um, and so you could, you could project that out and say that, like, well, really the best thing we could do is just, like, try to steadily keep getting people laid off. <laughs> but I don't think anyone... Or everyone could telework. <laughs> I, there's a lot, right, but I mean, then, then, then that's the other thing, right? Then I think the wiser conclusion would be that like <laughs> auto commuting is very hazardous and we should Perhaps look at things... Perhaps there's something we should do about we that. We can look at things that both improve safety on the road and also maybe reduce the need for commuting travel, things like that. So by the same token, I mean, like... It, it's true, right? Like one potential finding of this paper is that arbitrarily shutting down coal mines might not just be good for the environment, but like it could save lives uh, because people would be uh, jobless and have their communities destroyed, but not suffer from back pain. Uh, but I don't think... I, I don't think that's a take. I, I want to be behind. No, well, I, just, I, think I'm, I, I don't I think, think it's going to work, right? You know, like th there's, a, there's a real question. Uh, coal is, is quite bad for the environment and we need to do something about it, but I just, it, it seems like too clever by half to me that you're going to convince people in these communities that like it's, it's actually good for them to, to shut these jobs down because they will then get fewer injuries <laughs> and then not become hooked on painkiller. Like even if it's true, it's, it, it's, it, it, I don't think it's going to do the work that they are looking for here. No. This is actually reminding me some of the kind of intra-left arguments on, you know, if you if you had the ability to guarantee a baseline living standard for people, would you do it via universal basic income or would you do it via a job guarantee? And the people you know, who support the job guarantee tend to say there is something, there is an innate human need for purpose and a dignity that comes with having one that we can't just ignore if we're going to be helping everyone to be contributing, you know, feel like a contributing member of society, that that is important for their well-being. And then there's in, you don't usually see this on the right specifically. I mean, you see it in terms of like the dignity of work, work as a way to, you know, by treating work no as the su superior alternative to welfare, right? But you don't see it in the kind of spiritual people want this sense in the same, unless you're talking about coal communities, right. where it's often treated as this is a way of life for these people. It is it is insulting to ask them to be retrained. It is insulting to ask them to like pivot to the Green New Deal because the, what they have decided gives their life meaning is this particular thing, and which it, it's, is very easy to kind of overstate right. as a myth mythos, but 
If you have a dominant industry that is bad enough that you are likely to become addicted to something that could kill you just to retain your job, what stories you tell yourself about how important your job must be start to actually mean a whole lot, I think. And that's kind of something that we don't think about often enough when we assume that people have a very kind of transactional relationship with their labor, that they can more easily take more easily take or leave the jobs that seem least appealing. Right. I think it's been a fascinating thing as I've been kind of tracking the breakdown of fusionism, the, the former relationship between libertarians and conservatives that's broken down and now they're living in separate houses and sending each other very mean me- emails. Um, but you, know, you are starting to see more of the language of kind of like efficiency shouldn't be the focus. It's causing breakdowns in communities. I'd rather have worse products than see people out of jobs. Like these are arguments that are starting to be made among people like conservatives and then kind of the like libertarian leaning economic conservatives are like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> and so it's an interesting breakdown that you're starting to see kind of you know, you, in 2015, 2016, there were a host of you know, debates about this very idea that, like, you know, coal country is different, but then you're starting to see that going wider, you know, kind of like diners are different, mom and pop stores are different, this entire, like, the concept, and it, it, it's interesting also because it kind of reminds me of, like, the, like, shop local idea, movement that I remember, you know, my mom got very into back in Cincinnati, um, uh, very much like, you know, we we want to keep these places in business even if they don't do the thing as quickly as I would want them to do because it means something. It, it's interesting how that's become a kind of a cross-party, cross-ideological argument. Yeah, I, I think Shop Local is the centrist version of that and then Keep X Weird yes. is the like left version of that. Yes. yes. Um, keep West... But, so... As a as a tedious literalist, I, I I like this paper, and I always I always kind of want to like refocus the opioid conversation on the baseline question of chronic pain, right? Yes. Because like the the issue is that, at least as I understand it, that like opioid painkillers are not an appropriate treatment for chronic pain mm-hmm. because when you use them as a chronic remedy, you guarantee essentially an an addiction outcome. Uh, because tolerance builds up and it, and it doesn't work, right? But chronic pain is itself very bad. Right. And, what and, we... and blunt responses to the opioid crisis can, in fact, be a problem for chronic pain sufferers. Well, and at a minimum, it doesn't address the, the first topic, which is that people were experiencing a lot of pain and they want something that will help them. And opioids are not the appropriate remedy for that, but we're not doing that much from a public policy standpoint to support people with physical therapy. You know, yeah. you, need, you need like a job guarantee where we teach everyone uh, to use foam rollers or something, you know, but it, it, because this is a, a very really serious problem in an aging society. Like this is a serious problem. And it's, a, it's something that we've actually gotten to really late because the concept, and I know it sounds kind of ridiculous, but the idea of pain as itself a problem with something like the medical establishment, I just said medical establishment. Oh God, no! The oh. medical establishment resisted it, but the enlightened pharmaceutical companies yes, the got, enlightened. It, got it established. Our, our betters who Thank you, you know, sent out in like 1996 sent out like helpful mailings on how oxycontin could solve all your problems. But like the entire idea of what pain is is something that we're still trying to figure that out because there are a lot of times in which like you will see. Um, chronic sufferers of, you know, 
pain coming from an injury, but then sometimes pain isn't coming from a, a thing specifically. And it's something that, like, I also think that that's something we need to really get back to a discussion of, of how to deal with that on a public policy level. Oh, this means that I'm going to be the person who, when we talk about opioids, points out that the African-American death toll in the early phases of the opioid crisis might have been suppressed because people were because black patients were less likely to have their pain taken seriously and get prescribed yes, opioids as painkillers. Uh, many doctors believe that African-Americans feel pain differently or less. Also still believe that African-Americans have thicker skin. Which is the other, uh, those of you who were super assiduous and listened to the Weeds episode we released yesterday uh, would have heard us <laughs> talk some about this idea that the opioid crisis is a kind of white epidemic or at least has been framed that way and so therefore government's been more sympathetic. Um, I would love to see the version of this paper that is written in, a pl in areas that are not so overwhelmingly white and where, you know, in industries that are not so overwhelmingly white, but where occupational risks are equally high, uh, to see how much validity this idea that, you know, people who are in dangerous jobs are then going to get prescribed opioids, which is then going to be right. a health problem for them, really are, versus, you know, that might be the test of, is having a job actually better than the risk of getting addicted to opioids if you're not necessarily going to get addicted to opioids because you didn't get prescribed them because you're black, uh, but you still have to deal with the pain that the job causes. Right. So there we go. I remember, you know, trying to talk Dara out of going to graduate school, but she's here assigning dissertation topics uh, <laughs> to everybody out there uh, to look into it. I think that would, be, that would be an excellent one. Um, I, I want to turn to some, some question and answer. Uh, we have uh, microphones here. I think people probably know how to form lines and ask Bonafide questions, yep. bonafide questions only, or I will, I will throw this at you. Um, <laughs> seriously. Um, no, but we first, we're under strict instructions. <laughs> I, I wanted to mention a few things uh, while we have everybody's attention. If you are still looking for the perfect holiday gift, give the gift of the weeds. Tell your friends to subscribe. New episodes drop twice weekly on Tuesdays and Fridays. We also have a thriving Facebook group where we stop by to answer questions, get ideas for future episodes. Join us. Just check out the weeds on Facebook. And if you like the weeds, and you care about democracy and stuff, you might want to listen to Impeachment Explained. Obviously, no real impeachment heads in the live audience here, but it's a good show. Every <laughs> no, Saturday morning... to catch up on Impeachment yes, Explained. Yes, we have to find out, is Trump good or not? Um, <laughs> every, every Saturday morning, Ezra Klein slows down the news cycle to talk about what's really at stake. Very exciting. Coming January 8th, season three of The Impact, Vox's long-form narrative show, will focus on how some of the leading presidential candidates' policy proposals have played out before at other times and other places and other realities. From opioids to universal health care, from Nogales, Arizona to Taiwan, subscribe now. Hear a conversation with former Weeds co-host Sarah Cliff. Yay, boo. Sarah Cliff. <laughs> Woo! Yay! And the impact's Jillian Weinberger. Um, so that's good stuff. Uh, thanks, everybody. And we will go for a question. You. I'm pointing at you. Hi. Is this on? Yeah. Uh, my name is Elizabeth. I listen to you guys all the time. So thank you so much. Really glad you're here. Um, so I was really, really interested in both your dis your um, description between asylum and refugee, um, and but also the concept of war and welfare. Um, and so as somebody, I work a lot in climate change, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, interested in the idea of a climate refugee and the idea of who is causing the pain via war or whatever, and, and then who is the, the a refugee that is um, deemed worthy of resettlement or whether they want to leave or not, the, what were the impacts that we're causing 
as a society on that. So I would love to hear as we think in the future about uh, asylum seeking and, and displacement, how, what your thoughts are on former constructs of refugee and asylum to now. I bet you have a tidy answer. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I will fully admit that climate migration is the thing where my brain shuts down and says, it's too big. I can't. No, There's too much here. No. Um, I, I was like actually in denial about needing to learn about the concept until earlier this year when it became clear that the Northern Triangle migration really was in large part a climate migration caused by crop failures in the Guatemalan highlands. Um, but this is exactly, you know, when we talk about what happens when people aren't necessarily being forced to flee at the point of a gun held by a man in a uniform, like, nothing in the Refugee Convention equips us to deal with this. And that's why, you know, the UN kind of, they, they signed a global compact on refugees last year that's trying to at least create other ways for governments to cooperate that aren't just third country resettlement or trying to deal with the refugees they have. You know, there's a need for ongoing conversations about this, but no one in the international community is really equipped to have the conversation about how, how do we determine who is a climate refugee and what do we do if there are more of them than a government might feel comfortable taking? But I, I sort of want to tease out like how perverse this is, right? Because like the way the current setup works is that if the climate changes and weather patterns change and there's drought in your region and there's crop failures and people are hungry and the economy's going to hell and so you decide I need to go someplace else, you are definitely not a refugee, right? right? You are that absolutely is, that is, not. That is the core not a refugee case. You are trying to get food and have a good life. Like that, no, X, X, X. But if you stay and things keep getting worse and there starts to be conflict between two different ethnic groups over who has access to the water and armed bands start committing genocide and then you flee, like, then maybe you are a refugee, right? Right, but then you have to prove to the government that you aren't just fleeing because of the climate. There actually are some cases of, like, indigenous land rights activists having to demonstrate, no, really, I wasn't just fleeing because the government has taken all of our land. I was fleeing because the government targeted me because I didn't want them to. Right, and it's... it's it becomes in the in the vocabulary, right, of like who is a climate refugee, right? It's there there is a category where you say, okay, a war or something has happened and the root cause is some climactic change. But like just leaving because the weather patterns have changed. Because you're town is now underwater? Because it's not, I mean, I don't think so. That's no, a, you really, you're not being persecuted by ethnicity. You're being persecuted just, by water. Just, just because, just because the fields are flooded or, or your a hurricane island no destroyed longer your exists. house. I'm now thinking of the U.S. designating water a terrorist organization, <laughs> which, because, because the thing is you can't become a refugee if you were found to have been a persecutor in your home country. And so the human body being whatever percent water, every single one of us fails. But that's, but that's what Jane, Jane was saying, but the, the post-World War II context yeah. of the Refugee Convention and refugee law, it is, it is not equipped to handle, like, impersonal forces. So uh, sometimes when conservatives accuse liberals of wanting to repeal the Second Amendment, you get leftists on Twitter saying, actually, we should repeal the Second Amendment. Um, however, outside of, you know, Rucker, Bregman, and, you know, some libertarians, when conservatives accuse liberals of wanting open borders... There's not that many progressives on Twitter saying, yeah, we should open borders. So what's kind of the disconnect between those two different policy options? Oh, you do not follow enough economists on Twitter, my friend. <laughs> uh, 
do the Brian Kaplan has a good cartoon right, although he's, book he's about not exactly this. yeah it, not it is liberal, it's it's not it's it's the the libertarian economists as well as some of the liberal economists but that's a, this is a good descriptive way of getting it I I tap out when anything you know I was I was hoping this was would be a do you support open borders so I can say <laughs> I am professionally obligated not to have an opinion on that um, but I don't that's a good question here, that I here, do not here, know here's what I would say. The United States is an incredible outlier in terms of gun regulation, right? So it is easy if you are a person who uh, doesn't share the gun rights viewpoint and is minimally cosmopolitan to just look and say, hey, look, like in the UK, it's like almost impossible to get a gun. I, I, may, I maybe don't know what I'm talking about, but I think that's right. Um, and we should be like that, right? Whereas you don't have an open borders success story that people would point to, right? You see all the time, like, well, we should do what they do in Canada on healthcare. We should do what they do in England on guns. When people want to talk about open borders, which some people do, there isn't a, like, place that is the open borders utopia. And it's like, well, we should copy that because it's very, very successful, right? The United States, as non-open as our borders are, is a relatively high immigration country in the scheme of things and has historically been. So Americans tend to talk, when they talk in a pro-immigrant way, about the American tradition, right? And try to frame it in terms of a status quo or even a kind of a nostalgia uh, for, for the past. And if you want to talk about an open border scenario, right, the sort of pre-1870s United States is probably what you would look to. And then you get into all <laughs> kinds of ways technology has changed. Just a lot of things were different than the pre-1870s America. <laughs> yes. You know, a host of details. But yeah, I think that there's, I think that also you get into like, there, you know, as Matt said, there isn't really an example to which people could go. And I think that, you know, I write a lot about gun policy and talk a lot about the Second Amendment, but I do think that, like, you know, the concept of open borders, we're not even sure what we're talking about when we use that term. Because I think that there are, you know, there are some people who are, like, literally no borders at all. But in general, like, even the people who are thought of as advocating for open borders are not doing so. And so I think that even the language we use for that gets really challenging in a way that it doesn't necessarily for gun policy. Hi. Um, during your discussion, you like talked about three that I picked up, like different conservative constituencies that in some way do support refugee resettlement. So it was like Christians who see it as part of their moral practice or affiliated with these resettlement agencies who are often Christian-affiliated, um, veterans and national security people who are concerned about, like, translators and engineers who, you know, are facing these repercussions uh, in, in their home countries. And then um, also, like, these governors from either, like, deep red states like Tennessee or Indiana or, like, more purple states who are granting this per new permission for refugees, like, despite, like, pushback from, like, their party and, like, what would seemingly be, like, an easy decision for them just to say no. And I was wondering, like, what you guys thought, like, how do you square, like, this conservative kind of pushback for, like, against, like, these hard refugee, like, requirements or, like, restrictions? And is it, like, is it real? Is it too disparate? Is it muddled? Like, could it ever amount to, like, a change in the administration's policy? I think that, um, could it amount to a change in the administration's policy? No. Um, is it real? Yes. But I do think kind of the disparate nature 
of the policies, and especially because, you know, if the person I think who best makes the case for this is one of is part of the leadership of the uh, Southern Baptist Convention, that's not necessarily someone like we can rely on in kind of a policy standpoint to make these arguments. Um, I think that the I mean I think it's a very real sentiment. I think that there have been a lot of um, Christian and religious organizations at, you know, outside of the Christian tradition who have done a lot of work on this. But I do think that the administration's standpoint on this is, um, shall we say, not rooted in the Christian tradition or the <laughs> Judeo-Christian tradition more widely. Um, so I think that that is, like, the administration is almost a separate entity. And it's been interesting to see those groups, to see the people who are like, you know, I'm very supportive of the administration's um, views on the Hyde Amendment or the Mexico, Mexico City Protocol or on, like the administration's views on abortion more widely, but I don't support this. And you, you see a host of people on an individual and group level basically trying to square like, which is more important to me? And that just, that gets very complicated, but I don't, I think the administration, that's kind of a separate thing. And I think a lot of what you see with Trump era politics, right, is he has incorporated a lot of less religiously observant, uh, non-college educated white people right. into the Republican party. And he has also um, gotten Christian conservatives to accept a smaller share of voice inside the party where they control abortion policy. But for example, I mean, if you went back in time to 2006 and said like, well, Republicans will take over everywhere and they're not going to in any way impede uh, LGBT marriage equality. Right, you say like what? Like what? Like that's such a titanic change right. in, in policy. But there's been a, a backing off of several Christian priorities in order to focus on abortion and a couple of related issues, and an influx of more secular people and a sort of less religious, more racialized uh, political conflict. Right. There is an open question when it comes to immigration politics in particular of whether there's a pew pulpit divide, whether like the people who we hear talking about the need to welcome refugees are the head of the Southern Baptist Convention, but not necessarily your average Southern Baptist. I think that's an open question empirically, but it's definitely true that there isn't a critical mass of religious conservatives who are considering leaving the Republican Party over this. And like, that's what you, that's the decision you face if you're in the losing faction in the winning coalition. Like, is this worth my actually leaving the coalition or is this just sucking it up and dealing with it because I'm getting the other things I want? How are these changes in refugee policy experienced on the ground in refugee camps? Are there people being told that like, I'm actually, you can't come here, forget what we said. Uh, there've been changes from on high. Uh, it's not a hardcore denial. It's just kind of, you know, you're still in the pipeline. Um, even in the case of like people who are from travel banned countries, what you get is a pro forma denial and then saying, well, you can, you might be able to still get a waiver, you know, we'll like, we'll get back to you on that one. So it's not that dissimilar in other way, in other words from what you were dealing with before Trump or what, you know, a lot of people in refugee camps are dealing with, which is the idea that they're not going to be where they are forever, but nowhere else has actually said that they're booking them on a plane. So, so no one's telling them that. Um, I certainly can't say no yeah. one's telling them that. There are enough anecdotal like reports of CBP officers telling people we're not taking in asylees anymore that like I have no idea what people on the ground are hearing and refugee camps uh, 
are similar to other places that I'm more familiar with where it's very easy for rumors to become fact. Hi, uh, Chris, thanks for being here. I'm an avid listener of the, of the podcast. Um, one of the through lines that I, I feel like kind of ran through the entire conversation was this idea of like the legitimate refugee, the legitimate other and the non-legitimate refugee. And like, to me, this also speaks to sort of a broader, like 30,000 foot view evolution of what's going on in like American conservative politics right now, where there's like a whole host of things that have traditionally been within the realm of just like liberal democracy, like legitimate areas where uh, there was bipartisan consensus. And now this is just completely being eviscerated. And I'm wondering like, what is the logical conclusion of this this movement. I mean, it, it just seems like we're completely eviscerating um, kind of the ability to even formulate consensus on anything that they used to be pretty normal. If I knew, who boy, I would be so you excited. So I, would, I would retire. I would finally watch all those movies that I've been meaning to watch. It would be great. Um, I think that one of the challenges that we've seen in the Trump era is that what Trump did very effectively in 2015 and 2016, more so than I think any candidate had, is that he became this tabula rasa upon which people could project whatever they wanted onto him. So you could simultaneously, he could be the best friend evangelicals ever had, and he could be the most pro-LGBT president ever, even though when he says LGBT, it's like he's never put those letters before, and it sounds like somebody falling down the stairs. Um, <laughs> and so you've, what you've seen in movement conservatism um, which is separate from kind of philosophical conservatism, it's the effort to put philosophical conservatism into practice, is an attempt to figure out, okay, what is this actually? What are we actually doing? And that's been a challenge, moreover, because one of the things about movement conservatism over the past 40, 50 years, it's been very focused on what it opposes. It's been very reflexive, and I mean this, and like, I'm going to use this word, and I know that it sounds pejorative, but I don't mean it this way. It's been very reactionary. It is reacting to something that's the, you know that has Burke thought it, and you know the you know as Buckley put it, you know we're standing athwart history, yelling stop. So movement conservatism has been very good at what it opposes. Movement conservatism has not been very good at establishing what it was for. And I think that that's one of the challenges of Trump is that you, know, you saw a lot of people who were like, you know, this is not what conservatism is. And then a lot of people being like, we don't care. Like, it's like the fugitive, essentially. Like, you know, we, it, it turns out that, like, we actually weren't that into free trade as much as you said. Uh, we actually weren't, we didn't really care that much about, like, morals or anything like that. It turns out that like some of us cared about those things, but a lot of us didn't really care about those things. And a lot of us were way more mad about immigration than you, know, you thought we were. And so what you're seeing now is a host of different sects within conservatism trying to be like, okay, here's what they're trying to tell us. Here's what they're saying. So you're seeing some of kind of on the populist right who are like, this means we should be using the force of government to do things, but do things we want to do, like ban pornography or establish maternal leave, um, which is somehow the same idea coming from the same person. Um, and so you're seeing this kind of idea, but like that has been one of the challenges is that movement conservatism has been so focused, and you see this in kind of like campus conservatism, a lot of like socialism sucks, but then when it comes to, you know, alt-right people yelling at them, they're like, we're not quite sure what we're for. We're not quite sure what this movement is about, what, we are, what we're putting forth, you know, 
Y'all for a limited government if it means the government can't tell you to to stop downloading pornography? You know, are we for a limited government and are we for like, you know, free trade when it means that, you know, the company that held up your town is going out of business because there's a company over there that doesn't You keep telling me you don't want to do a porn episode <laughs> and then dragging this to pornography. I'm sorry. Um, but I think that that's been, you know, this idea of, you know, there are a lot of people within movement conservatism who for years thought they knew what this was and the ground has shifted so much that they're not sure anymore. So I think like the, you know, it's not even about a bipartisan consensus. It's about a consensus within the movement itself. I mean, I think it's worth bearing in mind that in the context of immigration, if you're not willing to go as far as open borders, you have to be making decisions about who the worthy and unworthy other is. It's like, it's the line about Winston Churchill and the society lady. It's just haggling over the price. Yeah. Third time's a charm, Matt. Yes. Uh, my name is Jared, and at risk of hogging the Q&A time, I have two questions, actually. Um, the first question is for Dara specifically. Uh, a couple of days ago, you uh, posted on Twitter about your frustration with how some people are using certain terms related to immigration. For those of us who uh, really weren't able to follow that that much, uh, <laughs> could you explain a little bit? And secondly, just generally for the panel, um, are Trump's election, uh, Brexit, and the ensuing conservative majority, uh, the AFD policies that you touched on earlier, and also my understanding is that uh, Denmark's government is starting to um, try to send Syrians back to their country because they've designated it as safe now. Uh, with a lack of kind of unified opposition to that, is that a harbinger of a backlash against immigration generally uh, in the coming years? Number two, yes. <laughs> um, I think that these two are actually the same question. The 30-second version of the first one is U.S. policy is not to take people and put them in terrible conditions when they come to the U.S. U.S. policy is to get them out of U.S. custody as quickly as possible by sending them out of the U.S. So either to Mexican border towns where they may not have housing, where they may be in tent cities, where they are being systematically uh, targeted for kidnapping, or increasingly uh, with rapid orders of deportation or to now Guatemala and other Central American countries, other under cooperative agreements. So focusing on conditions in U.S. custody is missing the forest for the trees. So uh, thanks for being here. Except for your first question, it was a lot of dudes, so I thought I would get up here and ask a question. Um, so since this is a policy podcast, <laughs> I just want to get your opinion. So we've in the age of like superstar and celebrities as politicians, um, do you see a danger in some really interesting uh, policy topics being so associated with uh, potential elected officials? So. Andrew Yang and UBI is what I think about a lot. It's like a really interesting idea, but will it forever, will UBI in the discourse of people outside of this room who have never thought about UBI only think about it in terms of Andrew Yang? And then the second example is, so earlier this week, AOC was talking a lot about asset limits on SNAP. And at first I was like, oh, sweet, maybe we'll finally get some movement on this. But my second thought was, oh shoot, now there's gonna be a lot of attention and this is gonna be added to the list of things that the right is against because they she is like their perennial uh, boogeyman. So just like the personality of politics and interesting policy ideas. Right. Is there a danger? You've given me a whole new thing to worry about. <laughs> no, I think, uh, I think in many senses, um, you know, I started out in sports writing and I'm very sorry, but I appear to have accidentally brought the sports into the politics because the idea of like a 
entity or an idea being so connected with a person is something that we see a lot in, say, like college football or the NFL more broadly, thinking about a specific offense being about like a specific person. And like, oh, you bring in that guy and he'll run this offense, even if that's not the right thing to do. Um, so I do think that that's a real question, because I think that that's something that you see a lot. You know, when Trump talked a lot about, you know, um, like there were a lot of people who were, you know, protectionists before Trump was. And a lot of those people are not happy because their protectionism was like, I've written a lot of papers on this issue. And Trump's protectionism was like, herp dip derp I'm Trump. Um, <laughs> and so I think that, you know, there really is a sense, and I think that you see this um, in conservative politics more broadly, just kind of, you know, specific ideas, um, you know, you're seeing how libertarians are kind of being pushed out of the movement, but also the fact that like certain ideas become connected with certain people and you're like, I really like this idea, but this person's a dick. I think that that's a really common issue and it is one where, you know, especially there have been times in which, um, you know, it's kind of that like the worst person you know has a great idea meme. You know, I think that that's happened a couple of times with Trump specifically. And I think that that's been a challenge because there's kind of like the, yes, you're right, but no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip the alternating so we can get, a, get another question from a woman here. It's a lot of pressure to put on me. Okay. Um, I would like to kind of circle back to the refugee policy discussion. So I think something I think about a lot is how um, this global consensus on refugee policy and a lot of what defines kind of the limitations on the Trump administration is that we've signed on to these like global agreements about how we treat people. And seeing as like war looks a lot different now than it did in World War II and so conflict is changing and we already had a question about climate being a pressure now and as all that changes and alongside that we have these like more nationalist movements um, on a day where we don't have a Trump presidency is the mechanism for change for somebody who cares about refugee policy international institutions or is it going to be done more at the national or even sub-national level and for more of a gradual consensus from there. I love this question because I personally think that the folk understanding of who is a worthy refugee has totally shifted away from the black letter of U.S. law in such a way that, like, arguably it would be an easier thing to get a Democratic Congress to pass a more robust definition. But I don't, I think that that does have to be national because it's a matter of, like, federal law. Trump has been officially impeached, I'm told. So that is news um, on one article. Yep. To, be, to be pessimistic, I actually think people should worry about international regress, right? That there are enough different constituencies out there in a, a range of different countries. I mean, you have a, a lot of countries in the developing world who are actually hosting much larger groups of refugees who are now saying, look, uh, if the United States of America and, you know, nice, cuddly Denmark are all saying, well, we don't want to take people in, like, we should be allowed to kick them out and repatriate more rapidly. I mean, if you look at what's happening in um, India right now, uh, that's, I would say, more egregious than anything Trump has done. And then you're already seeing, um, you know, I wrote about this um, with my husband actually at MTV, um, but the issue of stateless peoples, that's already been something that a lot of countries have tried to deal with, where I've just basically been like, oh, well, we'll just give you passports for this country that you're not from, and then you won't be stateless, and then you can leave. It'll yeah, be great. Yeah, and, and so I, I think like this has so been I, something. Like, I, I think you could, yeah, I mean, imagine a global rollback 
to say, look, we're all striving to meet our international legal obligations, but actually we wish we didn't have those obligations. Right. And like we can collectively free ourselves of them. Thanks. for uh, Earlier you talked about the conservative response to the refugee crisis and immigration more broadly, and I heard this response I kind of expected here, but what I didn't hear was it a sort of real politique on the on take on it, which is essentially that, you know, the conservatives have had demographics is destiny shoved in their face and rubbed in for like the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. And regardless of whether or not that's accurate, I mean, to what extent is this uh, conservative response just an acknowledgement that continued migration from the global south does threaten their majorities at the federal level in key states like Texas and Arizona and Florida? I mean, it's difficult to talk about this without, because we're talking about like fewer than 100,000 people a year, um, it's difficult to talk about how refugee politics in particular play into this without acceding to the idea that there is this mass of refugees. So it gets very difficult to disentangle the like mythos of refugees as bad people um, because you're not going to be as concerned about demographics being destiny unless you believe that we're letting in a lot more people than we already are. But, but I do think this was a big issue specifically in 2013. Right, because at a very elite level in conservative politics, there was a kind of long-standing disagreement as to like, because demographics is destiny, do we need to do something that will make Latinos like us more, or is that futile and we need to go the other way? And that was something that, I mean, very visibly in the winter of 2012, 2013. The GOP autopsy. Uh, uh, I mean, a, a lot of memories. different people on different sides of that argument had strong feelings about it. And one of the things that has unfolded over the past several years is that the initially dominant faction in that argument has lost out, and most elite Republicans have just decided that, setting the merits aside, that like anti-immigrant politics wins votes in the here and now and shapes the demographics in a more favorable way in the future, and that to an extent the like triumphalist liberals were correct about immigration. And I, I don't think that that impacts mass politics that much, but it, it very clearly ha has impacted elite so uh, changing the topic to uh, U.S. places in economic decline that you talked about in the white paper, uh, an idea on another Vox podcast, the Ezra Klein Show, uh, economist Paul Krugman, Ezra talked about, was populating these places with major research universities, but was a very sort of short discussion of the merits. Uh, I was kind of wondering if you guys had any opinions and thoughts on that idea of basically a second round of land-grant universities. Matt has strong idea. thoughts on uh, relocating <laughs> to do. less interesting places. So. Uh, I, I, think that's, <laughs> I think that's a good idea. I, I think it's actually important to distinguish between two different cases uh, that, that often get, I think, muddled together in the regional decline issue. One is that the Great Lakes states have suffered a lot of relative decline. Those used to be strongly above average income places. They have regressed to being about average and have also lost human beings, right? Uh, the, you know, there's been a lot of out-migration from them. The other is the sort of Appalachia-Ozarks issue, which are, those are the poorest places in the country, and they always have been, right? So the question of, like, struggling regions 
Americans uh, melds those two things together. And I think they're actually quite different. And I think the research university's idea is most promising for the relative decline case. Because the thing about Cleveland, Detroit, St. Louis, places like that is for all the problems that they have, they also have the bones of major cities, right? Like airports, pro sports teams. So if you plop a couple big institutions down in them, it's really easy to see them kind of taking fruit, right? You're not going to have a huge research university in a tiny mountain town, like just logistically. And even if that worked, what you would generate... I come from Virginia Tech. Uh, fair enough. Word, so. I, this was the other thing I was going to say. To the extent that that worked, what you would be doing is turning mining communities into college towns, which would not preserve like what people are trying to preserve, right? So I, I think that that's a harder problem, right? And it starts with acknowledging the fact that those regions have always been the sort of poorest parts of, of the country. And I'm not by any means like against putting more money into research universities in West Virginia or Eastern Kentucky. I just don't think that necessarily achieves the objective that, that is desired. There. I'm prepared to see if more funding for college football in those areas could benefit economically. As we've seen, uh, Virginia Tech brings in a ton of money, Virginia Tech football, you know, when they're not losing to Virginia. Um, <laughs> they, you know, I think that I'm, pre I'm prepared to see that, you know, if anyone is willing to boost up, you know, Eastern Kentucky University's college football program, I'm 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 ready to see the the results of that. Speaking of <laughs> professions where you're more likely to get injured than you are to make a living wage. We don't talk about that. It's fine. <laughs> it's cool. It's cool. Okay, so thanks to everybody uh, for coming. Thanks so much to the Sixth and I Synagogue uh, for hosting us here, and uh, well, we'll see you later. <laughs> In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.